This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From BBC Science Focus, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Daniel Bennett, the magazine's editor, and today we're taking a look at what lessons we can learn from the pandemic. And I'm joined by Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter, the non-executive director of the UK Statistics Authority and the chair of the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication at Cambridge University. His new book, uh, written together with Dr Anthony Masters, who's an ambassador for the Royal Statistical Society, is called COVID by Numbers, and it's a succinct but comprehensive guide to the statistics that tell the story of the pandemic. I just wondered if you could give us a sense of the picture that you were getting as the pandemic unfolded, you know, there's um, a lot of experts in the media were kind of throwing out a lot of different predictions and stats and numbers, and sometimes it looked all quite confusing. And I wondered, from your perspective as uh, as a statistician trying to take a you know a broad view of what was happening, was it sometimes overwhelming the, the amount of data you had, or was it you know brilliant? You could dive in and, and, and pick out details of what was happening. Just wanted to get a sense of what it was like, what the kind of quality and I suppose resolution of the picture that you were able to build as it happened. Well, things changed so much during the pandemic. I mean, really at the beginning, back in March and April 2020, it was a very, very confused picture. 
Um, it only just started in this country, and we weren't testing, so we had no idea how many people actually had the virus. And we're you know, counting a few deaths, but that's a hugely lagged indicator of what's going on. And we now know, of course, that the virus was you know, erupting all over the country simultaneously by, by, by mid-March, essentially. And uh, we now know that. We didn't know it at the time. And so the dribs and drabs of numbers that came out were, were really um, unsatisfactory, very difficult to do anything with. Uh, there are also numbers coming out, which are, of course, the epidemic model projections. Now, these are not statistics. Uh, these are, you know, sort of simulations of, of, of possible futures uh, under, you know, very strong assumptions. And they got huge amounts of attention. Um, and as a, in a way, I think as a warning, uh, it was quite reasonable they got too much attention. But I think it's very important to distinguish <laughs> numbers that are things that are actually measuring what is going on in, in uh, you know, in, in the world around us and numbers which are possible projections for what might happen in the future under certain circumstances. So I think we need to distinguish those very carefully. Well, that's, I mean, that's that's probably a good thing to just dive into because, there was a lot of talk in the media uh, and, and sort of confusion, I guess, around projections and what they actually meant. Uh, I'm going to probably get this wrong, but there was, what's it called? The sort of the worst case scenario. You, you had an abbreviation for that. Okay. So the, 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 it's, it's traditional in government modelling that um, analysts are asked to, to um, do a projection based on what's called a reasonable worst case scenario. And this has been around for years in government planning, so this is something that's plausible, but is is you know at the very much the serious end, you know, reasonable worst case, um, and so it's a deeply pessimistic scenario that is, and, and that's what models are asked to do. That's the that's the instructions they are given to do that. It's quite clear. It's not just a, their choice; they're told to do this. And so, for example, Imperial in their very influential paper from March the sixteenth. You know, their reasonable worst case scenario they looked at was if the pandemic went wild and we didn't do anything whatsoever against it. And then they projected, oh, there'll be half a million, half a million deaths and uh, whatever. And of course, that's quite plausible. But of course, if we had done nothing about it, we're not going to, you know, this is completely an implausible, in a sense, future because we're never going to sit around and watch half a million people die. We'd have done something about it. But as a, uh, and so uh, this was, you know, has been called by people who want to run down the modeling, a, a prediction. And of course, this is nonsense. It's never a prediction. It's a, it's a sort of upper bound if we did absolutely nothing. And, uh, and then models will produce all sorts of other things under more plausible scenarios of reacting to it. But th- th- I'd say, you know, throughout this whole pandemic, um, we might as well deal with this now. I think the models have received over much attention by everybody because they are just projections under um, particular assumptions they're the, they're, these assumptions are actually dictated by the government to say well what you know the, the models are told what to do to a large extent they only cover certain outcomes and they can't they, they the crucial thing is of course we don't know is is human behavior and the whole pandemic is driven by human behavior and so the assumptions made about human behavior were massively influential and yet are the ones that are least data on and you know who know we don't know how people will react we just don't know 
So in my feeling is that these models, which are based on you know what technically we call highly non-linear sequence of events, where things can explode upwards very rapidly or, or not, um, you know, it's not these are not nice smooth models. Small little tweaks in assumptions uh, can send them off in very different directions. It's, you know, it's almost chaotic. So uh, I, 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 I think that the modelers were perhaps taking on a bit too much, and certainly too much has been made of what they've done. Are you optimistic then that we'll come out of these two years with, as a country, better uh, literacy around statistics and numbers? You know, so it's long been your mission to help people understand data and risk and, and, and statistics. I am hopeful. I am hopeful. Um, certainly, the the public interest in data and stats is unprecedented. The and the we know just know that the willingness of the media to engage with statistics seriously and to use graphics and to explain the numbers is unprecedented. I think. Extraordinary efforts right across the range. I mean, I've worked with every ball, every outlet. I think, and uh, and even you know some of the more you know, perhaps unlikely ones have done very well in putting graphs up and explaining what's going on. So I, I'm I'm quite optimistic. There's, there's still a real problem within the media of when things get away from the journalists who actually know what they're talking about. The, the, the health journalists and science journalists, are been, I think, have been very good indeed. Um, they haven't fallen through for all the misinformation that's been floating around. They've been, I think, very reliable and ex- some brilliant explanations of what's going on for the problem is, is when it gets in the hands of the general journalists and the political journalists, who frankly can be utterly clueless, and um, and it, it just becomes embarrassing. Um, the, okay, here's a classic one. You know, people have known for more than two years that the number of cases or deaths being reported each day, particularly, particularly deaths, depends crucially on the day of the week. Um, they're very low on Sundays and Mondays because deaths don't the records don't come in, reports don't come in, and very high on Tuesdays and Wednesdays when they catch up. Tuesdays in particular always have a massive number, usually double what it is on Mondays, for example. So there's a so Tuesday's data is, is completely unreliable. Three times the Evening Standard has had a headline, COVID deaths soar to record numbers or something like that. And the, three times, using the same words, and the only thing that's in common between these headlines is they're all on Tuesdays. And, you know, you just think, for heaven's sake, please, please, just understand that these are deeply unreliable numbers. And, and uh, you know, not, actually, it's not just journalists. Other people have used those numbers to make, you know, when they want to say, oh, it's all awful, it's all terrible, what's going on? And so there's been a lot of misuse of numbers, sometimes even knowingly. But often, I think, it's just through um, people not, understanding where the numbers come from. And you can say the same with COVID deaths. I mean, there's at least three, four definitions of a COVID death that one can use. And so it's, it's, it's very complicated. I can understand people having trouble, but the good journalists have come to really understand this stuff. Did you get a bit, and you know, I, I did see you on Twitter quite often, uh, fighting the good Ramping away. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think you were very, very polite, actually. I wouldn't I describe it. I yeah. Did you feel that was a kind of a public service, almost? Like, you know, well, I, it's um, inter- Twitter's a strange thing. I mean, yeah, my following built up hugely. Um, but I'm quite sparing how I use it now. Uh, for me, it's been invaluable. 
Um, it really has been. It's been extraordinary. There are such good people on Twitter. The real insight for me, which is surprising, is the role of what you might call the independent analysts. Well, first of all, conflict of interest. I'm a executive, non-executive director of the UK Statistics Authority, which oversees the work of the Office for National Statistics, the COVID infection survey, the census, etc., so I would say they're a wonderful group of people doing fantastic work. They are a wonderful group of people, <laughs> but, I, but that is my conflict of interest. So the analysis by them and um, by the UK uh, Health Security Agency, what was Public Health England, um, has been extraordinarily good, really fantastic. So we might call it institutional analysis. But... What's been essential is all the independents. Now, some of those are organizations, the actuaries have done a brilliant job. The people, um, ICNARC, who look at intensive care data, wonderful reports. But then there's genuine, and then there's academics, you know, Oliver Johnson and others, and I suppose, you know, I've done some. And then there are real independents, people who've got other jobs and they just have been putting out stuff. James Ward, Paul Mainwood, and others on. Um, on Twitter, who have done brilliant modeling and analysis and real insights um, in their spare time. And it, it, I don't know how they got spare time, really. Um, and it, for me, those people, it's been completely invaluable. And journalists have picked up on these people and using them, and not just on more or less and other programs, but on, um, you know, from other sources. So um, I think the, I, in, in praise of the independent analyst, I think this is really shown valuable they can as a, as a check on what what the the big boys are doing mm, i there were a no you, you obviously have to be careful who you follow and who you listen to but they, you're right you're absolutely right there's a, there were a lot of hobbyist statisticians doing brilliant work and there are also some awful hobbyist statisticians <laughs> doing awful work you know really dire manipulative misinformation has come out so and there's no immediate way of telling from someone's twitter profile whether they're trustworthy or not you just have to learn. You can learn quite quickly by their tone. I mean, the, the, the crucial thing, you know, my indication always is, you know, is is somebody trying to genuinely inform you? Or are they trying to persuade you of their point of view? And you can usually pick that out pretty damn quick. Well, that's a good, that's a good point to jump onto one of the really common myths that persisted on Twitter, which is, this is just like seasonal flu. Why aren't we treating this like flu? This is like flu. Uh, I wonder if you could just speak to that because um, you you did look at the data here, and you've got some start statistics on that. How, how different is it to seasonal flu? So rather ironically, at about the time we're speaking, it's probably not that different. <laughs> now, it certainly wasn't two years ago. It was nothing like seasonal flu. It was far worse. You know, it was really it was really punishing. The infection mortality, fatality rate is probably 10 times seasonal flu. It's far more infectious. So, no, much worse than seasonal flu. Obviously, it was at the beginning. Things are different now. So, you know, it would be dreadful if, because now it's becoming much more like seasonal flu, and I think that's what likely what it will be like in the future. If people say, oh, well, why did we need all that stuff two years ago? Yeah, because it wasn't like that then. 99% of us have got antibodies. Come on. You know, this, at the start, 0% of us had antibodies. You know, there is a huge difference now between them. So um, I think that at the beginning, it clearly wasn't. And the people who were saying that, and it's just a seasonal thing, completely deluded and, and dangerous in their misinformation. And I, so I wonder, um, you've, you've, you know, you've obviously had a great career 
studying risk and how, how people understand them. What, what, what surprised you the most over the last two years, I wonder? Oh, from a risk point of view, it's age. You know, I, I have to say, by March 2020, I was on more or less banging on about the unbelievable importance of age and that the risk of dying from COVID you know, doubled for every about six, seven years you were older and that this meant that uh, someone in their 90s had 1,000, maybe 10,000 the risk of someone who is, who is nine years old. So, you know, th- this unbelievable you know, effect of age, which, of course, is well, normal mortality has that, you know, link with age as well. And COVID risk follows normal risk. We, study after study has shown that your risk of dying from COVID is proportional to your normal risk of dying each year. Very, very closely. Some factors are slightly different, but amazingly closely. What COVID does is take any vulnerability you've got and exaggerate it. And the biggest vulnerability is just being old. So we know that your risk of dying each year you know, increases massively when you get older. We know that scientifically. People... <laughs> I don't think people do really do realize this, you know, actuarial risk. They're unaware of just how steeply risk increases as you get older. We know everyone knows it happens, but they haven't got a feeling for it. They haven't got a natural feeling. And that's partly because there's real difficulty of grasping exponential growth. And this is exponential growth in risk with with age, with, with as I said, it doubling every every six to seven years. So that's that's a really, really tricky thing to grasp. And I don't think anyone's ever, we've ever grasped it. Um, the, the, there's young people going around, you know, really worried about COVID or getting COVID. I think, okay, yeah, some young people have died. Very few, really. And kids, you know, essentially, you know, you know, nearly all primary school kids have had COVID. They're not unvaccinated. They've all had COVID. Just about not, not, um, yeah, nearly all. And so, actually, without much, I don't think really much harm, there are, you know, there are obviously some long COVID cases. I can't deny that that happens, of course. But in terms of really of, of fatalities and things, no, it's unbelievable. The risk, and, and it's incredibly dangerous for old people. So I, I think it's that aspect which never has really got through to people. And the government has been, uh, Chris Whitty went on about this right from the beginning. I, I think they've been worried about, about, saying it that the average age at which people die from covid is 82 which is the same average age that people die normally so and i think we've been worried about promoting it because it might give the idea oh well covid is only for old people anyway so um we don't have it so i think there's been it may have been a, a you know so i think that's why there's been a reluctance to to emphasize the massive risk gradient among people in order to almost to keep everybody to some extent to keep everybody well, I, we could talk about this, you know, I, I think it's, it may have been, you know, there has been some attempt to keep people anxious. And I think it's now we're getting the payback of it, of a lot of anxious people. And then one thing I just want to put to bed, because it's probably the two, the, there were the two biggest things was on the TV every day, we saw the total number of cases and the total number of deaths. And again, there was a lot of uh, statisticians popping up on Twitter. Um, when I say that, I mean the, the you know the new ones who suddenly found themselves trying to uh, make sense of <laughs> the data, and there was a lot of querying of these figures. Um, what do we know now about the total numbers of cases and deaths in terms of? It depends what you mean by case and what you mean by death. Cases 
um, you know, is is confirmed cases with PCR tests or whatever. And uh, that now, of course, that bears no resemblance to the actual number of people with infections. If you look at the number of people who have been infected with COVID, I don't know, you know, 40 million, you know, something, you know, it's just uh, unbelievable vast numbers, almost pointless to record it. As I said, 99% have got antibodies, but that um, uh, that includes, of course, people who have been vaccinated, but huge numbers of people also had it after the vaccination, like I did, and, you know, vast, vast numbers. So it's almost pointless to talk about the number of people infected because you might as well just say, well, almost everyone. Not quite. There will be some people who haven't had it, but not. So, and yet, if you just use confirmed cases, then that just depends on testing regimes. We know that. As soon as tests stop being free, suddenly cases drop. How, isn't that amazing? So, um, so that, and then deaths also, you know, what definition do you use? Um, the, the, the daily deaths, which is the rapid report one, just who died within 28 days of a positive COVID test, actually tra- for some time tracked fairly well the real number or better number, which is what's on records on the death certificate. But they lost track. Of, you know, recently, they, they sort of lost track of each other more. But for a while, that, it wasn't too bad. The daily number wasn't too bad. But then... If you just look at what is generally considered the gold standard, which is presence on the death certificate, then you've got, you got three different things there. You've got people who died you know, due to COVID, where it was the underlying cause of the death. You've got people who died with COVID as a contributory factor. It wasn't the main cause, but it contributed to the death. And then you've got people who died generally with COVID. In other words, they had COVID, then died of something else, in which case COVID will not be on the death certificate or should not be on the death certificate death certificate data itself is pretty complicated. So, you know, there's no, you can't say how many people died of COVID. Oh, for a start, in the first wave, huge numbers of people died from COVID who weren't recorded as dying from COVID. It was under underdiagnosed. All the, all, so many people died in care homes. All people died, it was sent home, died of COVID. Doctors didn't see them, didn't want to put it on the death certificate because they hadn't seen them. And so in the first wave, there was a real large, you know, thousands of excess non-COVID deaths. Well, these were COVID deaths, really. You know, the, the, even the gold standard death certificate data is not perfect at all. So we don't know. I mean, for a start, we don't know because what does it mean to die from COVID? You know, what does that mean? Um, you know, you can think of all sorts of different definitions. You know, <laughs> we get very philosophical. You know, what is cause? You know, it, it, these are not well-defined, countable numbers. We can't go out there and and identify these cases perfectly. So that's why people look at excess deaths. But then that's all, you know, just count the bodies and see how many more there are than you'd normally expect. But then you have to decide, well, what would we normally expect? And that requires assumptions and modeling and things like that. So... Essentially, none of these things are absolutely you know, hard and fast, cold, hard numbers. Um, they're always constructed on the base, on one basis or another. And all we can say is that, yeah, there's been a lot of people who've died <laughs> who, who wouldn't have died so soon. Yeah, I mean, what are we talking about, 150,000 or something like that, um, and which is a lot, who, whose lives have been shortened by, by COVID. There's a really interesting study and kind of little anecdote in the book that I just wanted to highlight and bring to the conversation which is we talked about projections earlier but then in the book you talk about how when the the sort of models are really hard to make because there's so much minutia then we can turn to experts and see what they think and i i think it was you who carried out the study where you asked a bunch of experts what they predicted the number of cases would be 
and it it turns out we're we're all quite optimistic. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. I was I I got I'm hopelessly optimistic. I wrote down my my predictions in March 2020 with probabilities on how many people would die. Hopelessly optimistic. Really, really no hopeless. And I I completely admit that I'm. I'm glad I've never been in, at any responsibility at all because um, I, I'm hopelessly optimistic and deluded. So, and I wrote down my projections, yeah. And people were, on the whole. You know, they just didn't envisage that something like this would be so bad. Partly because you're taking the lesson from things like SARS and MERS as they occurred in, and, and the whole government response to emerging diseases, you know, was based on the assumption that it would be like SARS and MERS in, in, um, uh, in, in the Far East, where these have happened before, or into Canada as well, where they, because they almost they're so infectious that, uh, and and but they're infectious when people have got symptoms that you can actually isolate it quite quickly, and so the government projections had for emerging diseases had you know a couple hundred deaths as the as the reasonable worst case scenario, and they had a you know big flu pandemic modelled. And they had a big, they had an emerging, you know, a disease one. What they hadn't taken into account was an emerging disease in which there was asymptomatic spread, in which you couldn't just isolate people and stop it spreading. Is that is that something we can account for in our thinking in future when it it comes to? I don't know. Does that come into modelling? Or the, the whole point about you know identifying reasonable worst case scenarios is to protect them against people like me. You don't want people like me doing disaster planning because I'm, oh, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. So, no, you don't want people like me at all. So that's why they go for reasonable worst-case scenarios, quite rightly. But they do, because of that, you do tend to very much focus on specific scenarios. And almost certainly that isn't what's going to happen. And it looks like in our, you know, the planning for this, that what actually happened fell between the gaps. That was Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter there, talking about how modelling works. If you'd like to dig a little deeper into the statistics of COVID and find out what David might tell his future self if there was another pandemic, check out Instant Genius Extra, a bonus podcast available via subscription on Apple's podcast app. Alternatively, do pick up a copy of David's new book, COVID by Numbers, which is written with Dr. Anthony Masters. Uh, it goes on sale later this year and it's published by Pelican, an imprint of Penguin Books. Thank you for listening. The Instant Genius podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as on your preferred app store. Alternatively, you can come find us online at sciencefocus.com. Thank you.